There was a celebration of like, remember like the Madonna sex book and everything? Like there was this idea that you could like have these fantasy, act out fantasies and have these performative relationships and that it was like the women were conquering too, you know, that we were, it was our conquests as well and that we could have, it's not, you know, what I learned in life is that it's not very realistic. (laughs) I mean, I don't know who invented this idea. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Hope you had a good 4th of July holiday. I am back from the Unspeakeasy retreat in Austin, as well as an event in Dallas. So before I introduce my guest, uh, Lucinda Rosenfeld, I'm going to talk to you about a couple of things. The first is that the event in Dallas, which took place on June 22nd as part of the Forbidden Courses session at the new University of Austin, that's the heterodox university that is not the University of Texas at Austin, and was a panel discussion with Sarah Heppala and Nancy Rommelman of the Smoke If You Got Em podcast, is uh, available for you to listen to. It was moderated by Alana Redstone, who's been a guest on this podcast, and you can hear it as an episode of Smoke Em If You Got Em. That episode was released on June 27th. This was a private event for students, and it took place in Dallas, even though it's the University of Austin, but it was recorded, and you can check it out on Sarah and Nancy's podcast if you haven't already. Let's see, what else? The second thing is I am hereby announcing that I will be teaching a personal essay and memoir class on Zoom this fall. You asked for it, you've kept asking for it, and I am giving it to you. It will be six weeks long, starting on September 6th, every Wednesday from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 to 2 p.m. Pacific Time. It will run September 6th through October 11th, and you can get the details by going to my Substack megandom.substack.com and checking out the announcement there. Finally, a bit of a last minute addition to our Unspeakeasy schedule this year, we will be offering a one-day event in Denver on September 30th. This will be an all-day women's retreat on Saturday, September 30th, followed by a co-ed party kind of thing that evening. We did this in Austin and it worked great. It will be like the other retreats, except sort of sped up. I'll facilitate discussions. We'll have a guest speaker or two. Lunch is included. So go to the unspeakeasy.com and or the Substack to request info about that. And we will send you information. After that event, there will be one more Unspeakeasy retreat this year. That is our luxury sanity spa retreat at a resort in the Poconos. And that one is filling up fast. So if you want in on it, don't delay. And of course, the Unspeakeasy online community continues to thrive. You can join that. You can uh, get a gift uh, membership for a friend. And, um, you know, people are often curious about this. We do screen everybody who comes in. It's uh, nothing too intense, but we do know uh, who everybody is. And um, we're very mindful of privacy and all that kind of thing. So even if you do give a gift membership, your friend is still going to be <laughs> investigated gently. So it, it, it's all good. Okay. My guest is Lucinda Rosenfeld. 
She is the author of five novels, and she's published essays and short stories in all kinds of prestigious publications. I invited her onto the podcast to talk about an essay that appeared last month in The New Yorker. It's called My Adventures in Deconstruction, and it is about many things at once. On the surface, it recounts a relationship she had in college with a married professor, 15 years her senior. This was in 1990 when such things were, um, well, not exactly encouraged, certainly seen as more unorthodox than verboten. But as you may have heard me talk about on my other podcast, A Special Place in Hell, the essay does something really cool. It maps the relationship story onto the landscape of a movement that was all the rage in English departments at that time, deconstructive criticism in literature. And in that tradition, to put it in the simplest terms, meaning itself is subjective. And Lucinda uses this concept as a lens through which to interpret her story and later in the wake of the Me Too movement, reinterpret that interpretation. It's a terrific essay. And in this conversation, we talk about her process of writing it. It was a long time in the making, as well as what it was like to be young and equal parts ambitious, naive, and pretentious in the 1990s. We talk about the cultural phenomenon of the bad girl, which was big back then. And we wander into a really surprising and fascinating conversation about the role that cigarette smoking played in the process of defining yourself as an adult at that time and protecting yourself from your own emotions in a good way. Lucinda stays overtime for paying subscribers to talk about how she feels about being the age that she is, which happens to be the age that I am. It won't be redundant, I promise you. So here is my conversation with Lucinda Rosenfeld. Lucinda Rosenfeld, welcome to The Unspeakable. Hello, Megan. Thank you for having me. You are a novelist and an essayist. You publish five novels. You published short stories in various prestigious journals. And we're here today to talk about a piece of nonfiction that came out in the June 9th edition of The New Yorker. Yes. It's called My Adventures in Deconstruction. And it tells the story of something that happened more than 30 years ago when you were in college and the aftermath of that and what it's been like to look at that experience through the lens of the mores and social norms of today. Yes. So why don't you start by telling us what the piece is about? Well, the piece is about an affair I had with my English professor 30-something years ago, and this affair was deeply damaging. Um, It also paralleled in a bizarre way um, a lot of the theory, literary theory that I was studying at the time. Um, It was a very niche field even then, but it... um, it's been interesting to note that it has actually had some wider ramifications, but the piece is about the parallel kind of mind and body things that were going on in my life as a very young woman. I was, uh, I had just turned 20, had some personal problems, including an eating disorder, and uh, I was looking for a way of living, and I was also had become interested in feminism, and the feminism in that era was, as you know, very different. Um, there was all kinds of weird stuff happening. And anyway, so my attempt in this essay was to try to trace the parallel, the through lines of really deconstruction and uh, the whole movement to like 
break down language and uh, hierarchies and everything and turn and, and look at literature as a sort of text and look at reality as a text, actually, and see how that paralleled this like completely fucked up uh, relationship I had or whatever you want to call it. So I okay. did that. Yes. <laughs> I, I, so I think a lot of people who are maybe younger who are listening are confused about at least two things here, or I think yes. we should explain to them a little bit. So the first would be having an affair with your professor, yes. which would be uh, much <laughs> less common today. But before yes. that, when you say there was a lot going on with feminism back then, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Well, so, you know, there were all these convulsions in the seventies and all the big social movements and, um, the eighties kind of like was like a reset and there was a lot of backlash to the women's live movement and everything like that. And by the time you got to the late eighties and early nineties, um, there was another kind of backlash against the sort of straight lace, seemingly anti-sex, anti-men movement of, you know, of feminism that had come up in the seventies and eighties. And so, you know, Madonna was the biggest pop star in the world. She was like the Taylor Swift person, I think. And, um, you saw all kinds of parallels happening in academia and in those worlds. And so what, from what I can gather, from what I can recall was happening in feminism is that there was an attempt to kind of eat your cake and have it too and re-embrace and redefine feminism in terms of like, you know, a pro-sex, pro-objectification movement. I think it kind of continued into the 2000s. Am I wrong? I don't know. I think, it, I think that this had a sort of a 20-year lifespan maybe, like, or longer even. Well, um, it went, so, I mean, I'm remembering that phrase, do me feminism. Oh God. Yeah. I think that was actually t- Tad Friend coined that in an, in an, in an article for Esquire, I believe. He but did? yes, that was the, it was the do me feminism. Or, yeah, I think so. I think we have to give oh, him credit know. for that. I didn't know a man yeah. had coined that. <laughs> right, of course a man had coined that. Yeah. But it was an attempt to like, you know, feminist, uh, Feminism had a reputation coming out of the 70s and 80s as being this killjoy movement that was like man-hating and whatever. So it was an attempt to like, you know, I mean, if you want to really reduce it, it was like to care about women's rights, but be hot at the same time and get to have fun. And also the word, uh, do you remember this well? Probably from the 90s, the, um, the phrase bad girl. Oh, bad girl feminism. Bad girl was this thing that was uh, re-embraced where you could be like, you know, slutty but a feminist also or something like that yes it was well it was like a political it was kind of the girl boss of its time yes it was a precursor to girl boss but it was also kind of like but it was girl bosses were like corporate and got the job done and made money and and bad girl was like embracing our our inner you know our, our inner slutty disaster area. Yeah. You weren't wearing the shoulder padded suit and the Nike shoes and going to the corporate job, like working girl eighties. Exactly. It was like, it was fishnets and living recklessly. And, um, so I guess I, you know, kind of like in a, in a, in a kind of half-assed way or a 19 or 20 year old way, embraced that to some extent. And I was getting fed a lot of these messages in my classes. I was getting it fed through the popular culture of the time. I also had personal problems and it all came together, ended up in this ridiculous um, thing, affair that I had, which um, by standards of the day was like, you know, it's like completely like I, <laughs> I don't know what young listeners would, will think, but I assume this stuff doesn't happen as often anymore. Or if it does, it's like really, really quiet. But 
I, I did not look at it at the time as anything abusive or anything like that. So, so okay. And this guy, we should say he was thirty-five. Yeah, is that right. So okay, and you were twenty. So yeah, it's. I mean, looking back, we were now, adults. A thirty-five-year-old professor seems impossibly young at this point, but. I know that's what's funny. I'm, of course, too, as someone who's an undergraduate, that's like a, you know. Yes. And he was married. Yes. Just to set the stage a a little bit, and you can talk about this in broad strokes. Did you were in this relationship for, it started your junior year of college, right? And so you were in kind of caught up in this for the rest of your time there. And we should say this was at Cornell. And then yeah, yes. for several years after that, did your friends like know what was going on? Was this out oh, in yeah. the open? It was like totally out in the open. I mean, you know, now you think about like, like a title X offices and everything. And no, it was like completely on the open. And um, as I think I said in the piece, you know, even if people raised eyebrows, you know, 18 year olds were considered adults when we were growing up right? Do you remember this? Like, it was like, well, she's 18, you know? (laughs) I know. It's amazing. What was totally not allowed at 17 becomes totally acceptable, but even younger. I mean, I, I, I tell people this and no one believes me, but I had a friend in high school who used to double date with her mother, her young divorced mother. They were both dating like bouncers in their twenties. And I mean, this would, people would like maybe raise an eyebrow, but like, this was just something that, you know, happened and was kind of amusing. Yeah. And uh, you know, obviously a different era, <laughs> to put it mildly. It is. I mean, I've talked about this before, but when Manhattan came out, the the Woody Allen movie where he's dating Mariel, the Mariel Hemingway character, who's supposed to be a high school student. What's What's most remarkable <laughs> about that film not it is not even that that storyline <laughs> in and of itself, but like there's this moment where Woody Allen and Mariel Hemingway go out with another couple, like a couple, his oh, right. age, the middle-aged <laughs> right. couple and the right. wife and the, and the husband goes, well, maybe, I don't know. She seems a little young. And the wife says, I don't know. I don't think, I, I don't think she seems too young. And just completely like, you know, matter of factly. Also the fact that we were told to embrace that movie as art and that I don't remember ever coming up in conversation that that was somehow like, like I, I, all the discussions of Woody Allen, it was just like a charming line, a, yeah. a, a charming scenario. There was never any, um, like now, you know, I mean, it, it is a huge seed change, but now I think that would be just be called like pedophilia or, or, or I don't know, not like not quite some version of pedophilia. Um, but certainly nobody thought it was like odd that I was, I mean, no one who told, no one, no one told me they thought it was odd. It was just like an adult. Okay. Uh, a slightly scandalous adult thing that was, you know, I had, was, I, I don't even know. It's, <laughs> I don't remember that being the problem, but I also was extremely naive and I had all kinds of delusions about the whole thing, which filled me with, fill me with embarrassment now, but you know. Well, so what's so interesting about this piece is that it doesn't just tell this story of this relationship. You layer it onto deconstructionist movement that was yeah. going on in the time in, in literature. You talk about Judith Butler. I just want to read a little bit. You, you write, you write, you are introduced to the work of feminist deconstructionist Judith Butler. From Butler's just published book, Gender Trouble, <laughs> I absorbed the compelling idea that women were always playing a part. Butler wrote, and I dutifully underlined, as the effects of a subtle and politically enforced performativity, gender is an act 
as it were, that is open to the splittings, self-parody, self-criticism, and those hyperbolic exhibitions of the, quote, natural that, in their very exaggeration, reveal its fundamentally phantasmatic status. Phantasmatic. Phantasmagorical? Phantasmatic. Phantasmatic sounds like the automat. Like, you can go to get, like, a cafeteria full of ghosts. Right. So, so right. Okay. So you say, now this is you speaking uh, coherently. Butler's theory of gender confirmed the feeling long embedded in my psyche that I had to perform in order for others to like me and especially to perform my femininity. Now, part of the reason I read that quote out loud is I want people to understand what an unintelligible and terrible writer Judith Butler is. Oh, beyond. I mean, that was like, that's the only line in the book that even made sense. So that's probably why I (laughs) underlined it. I think I was like reader one, by the way. I was like on that book, like the day it got published. I can't remember (laughs) why, but I really was reader one. I fully embrace this idea that we were all playing a role and performing and that reality was not like so much reality as like we were all acting out fantasies. There was this word that was going around in the lit theory days called simulacrum, which was like Mm -hmm. a reproduction of, it was a John Baudrillard term, like uh, it had to do with like, you know, a performance of reality. And so (laughs) it just sounds crazy now, but I think I thought I was like in some kind of like, you know, postmodern fantasy relationship, except at the same time, I was a young woman slash girl and I was uh, pretty lost and looking for love and affirmation like everybody else. So, I mean, these two things are happening simultaneously. And I mean, the, 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 the thing I wanted to do with the essay was there's just so many Me Too stories with some, you know, evil predator who preys on the innocent young girl. And of course, those stories are also true. And he took advantage of me. I don't have any doubt about that. But I mean, I was a full participant in this affair as well, and very fully a participant. And so what I was interested in doing the essay is seeing what led me to think that I was, you know, involved in an important, sophisticated relationship, when in fact, I was basically being used, you know, (laughs) I mean, I mean, those two things sort of coexisted, if that makes sense. Like, right. Well, and the occasion for the piece really is looking back on this through the Me Too lens. And, mm-hmm. you know, you this really poignant moment toward the end of the piece where you you talk about how you almost resent the reframing that so many women have done, all this kind of relitigating of relationships yeah. uh, that was that's been going on over the past several years, that it was easier for you to it was less painful for you to interpret the relationship as having been painful and you having yeah. been dumped than yeah. having been exploited. Yes. I mean, neither, neither narrative, now I sound like him, but n- neither, <laughs> n- neither narrative is particularly pleasing. I mean, it's something I've been grappling with for years. It left this kind of like, it left like a bad feeling. I won't lie. You know, I've, I tried to work it out in fiction, writing about it in fictional guises, uh, but it definitely left a bad feeling and I could never get to the bottom of it. But I think that, you know, these words started getting thrown around a few years ago, like abuse and exploit and all that stuff. You know, everything was abusive, like, right? Like right. abuse became a very loose category. And I mean, I preferred to see it as a, a messed up but adult relationship that had not worked out for me than somebody who was just like blatantly taking advantage of someone, which was somehow more humiliating. But 
to be honest, both things were kind of humiliating because I felt extremely poorly. I felt I felt forgotten about and and like ill used even then, but I couldn't put it into words. But I was just like, well, I guess I just wasn't the one, you know. <laughs> so I mean, I, I wouldn't say either of them was comforting, but somehow it was like a little bit like more less humiliating to think it was an adult relationship where I had had where an unrequited love was less humiliating than like he was just using you and like that (laughs) no I think that makes perfect sense and 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 you know you were a victim was like that wasn't particularly satisfying either so um yeah well I wonder like if you have thoughts about what is the responsibility of an older partner to a younger partner, like in terms of age difference, because it's almost unthinkable now for a 20 year old to be with a 35 year old. But like, how do you draw the line? Like what about a 25 year old and a 35 year old? I mean, I think that you shouldn't be grading their papers. That's probably the first thing. Yes. Well, that goes without saying, saying. but I, I think it's possible that you could have an, an age gap like that and it could be a loving relationship. I mean, I, you know, people do fall in love in unlikely places. It's not like by definition problematic. It's unlikely to be an actually sort of semi-equal relationship with that age difference, but I think it's possible. But I think that the requirement you, when you sign up for something like that on either end, I think you have a requirement to make sure the person's okay. And, and even if you end it and feel compelled to end it, that you end it compassionately and make sure the person's okay. And, uh, that was missing (laughs) for sure. Uh, there was like a, a, uh, uh, probably the hardest part of the whole thing is the sort of the callousness and the carelessness. The word carelessness keeps coming back, but after the fact. And so I think if you're going to like jump those if you're going to be with a very young person, then you need to like do some checking in more. And uh, that was missing. But again, the politics of the day were like, you know, you have to try to put, it's hard to remember those times, but there was a kind of belief coming out of the sexual revolution that you could have act out in a sexual arena and that it didn't necessarily have to have an emotional component. I mean, that that was sort of like, that was part of the culture, right? Am was I that wrong? the beginning of hookup culture? Because that's kind of the default now. Like catching feelings is what you want to avoid. Yeah, exactly. Oh, catching feelings, that whole phrase. Yeah. We were part of that culture. I mean, people went crazy. They went to college. They were like on their own for the first time, right? I mean, our years there was hookup culture. It wasn't called hookup culture, but well, I mean, some really bad stuff happened too. It didn't have the digital component. Like people were not hooking up with strangers that they connected with online. There was plenty of bad shit happening at Cornell. Like I had friends who were, you know, woke up semi-conscious in fraternity houses without their clothes on. And we didn't call that, I don't know what we called that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know what we called that. But I don't think it was the beginning of hookup culture, but there was a celebration of like, remember like the Madonna sex book and everything? Like there was this idea that you could like, have these fantasy act out fantasies and have these performative relationships and that it was like the women were conquering too you know that we were it was our conquests as well and that we could have it's not you know 
what I learned in life is that it's not very realistic. <laughs> I mean, I don't know who invented this idea, like some psychopaths, but basically, well, the sexual revolution was in, was invented by psychopaths. I mean, it, it, for, for straight people, the sexual revolution was like what I would guess I would have to call a mixed bag. Right. Like, I mean, I don't have like, I think that it really helped. I, I don't want to sound like one of those incel people, but I think it definitely helped the womanizers of this world. You know, like it, it definitely helped the players a lot. And yeah. like they benefited majorly. The elite man benefited majorly. I mean, kind of, right? Right. The, the quote unquote, high, the high value. The high value as, man as the did incredibly well. As, yeah. as what? Who calls it that? Well, the I mean, it's sort of like an Evo psych term. The high value man. High value. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. The high value man, male did extremely well. And, but I think also there was a kind of weird disconnect. And it was also in this sex positive uh, feminist movement that women could be just like men and that they could have strings free sex. And, you know, I, I guess there are some people who do and did and had a great time. And I think that, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know, it wasn't me, but um, like, I think that human beings were programmed to become emotional around sex. And I think it's fairly unrealistic to sustain anything for more than a night, maybe one night, two nights and not have, uh, you know, feelings attached to it. And so this whole deconstruction thing also was about like, you know, breaking down hierarchies and power structures and stuff like that. And, you know, I basically think it's a load of shit, <laughs> but and like the older I get, the more I think that, you know, I mean, I guess we're all performing. Do you feel like you're performing your femininity all the well, time? Well, it's so um, interesting how you were describing this performance aspect a little bit ago, because I often think and sometimes talk about how when I was in my 20s, I always, I, I kind of lived my life as if I was in like a French film or something. Like <laughs> totally. I just saw myself as like, a, like a character in a movie or in a novel. And I would like walk down the street and I would imagine that I was like a person in a movie walking down the street. A hundred percent. hundred percent. And I did a lot of like staring at the wall. I mean, first of all, a lot of it had to do with smoking cigarettes because the minute we you, all smoked so much, the reason <laughs> not, we didn't all, oh, people are going to get mad, but a certain, a certain sector, the, the thing with the cigarette was like, it immediately transported you from like, just whatever. The, New Jersey. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> there's the New Jersey way of smoking and just right <laughs> over the bridge, the other way of smoking. But but it was like, it was a moment, you were having a moment um, and, and you were like taking a pause. And I just spent so much time like staring out the window and, or staring more likely like at the brick wall that my window faced uh, <laughs> and, and, and like listening to music or whatever. And there was this kind of like just um, constant state of contemplation. And so maybe that's a performance. This is fascinating you're saying that. I think someone needs to do an, a, a more in-depth study of the role of cigarettes in the lives of young women in the late 20th century, actually. But I, I think you're right. It created a sort of a scrim between you and the world also. You were one step removed. We were all in film stills. We imagined ourselves in film stills. And smoking played a huge role in my life and affair that those year, that year or two. I mean, it was it was exactly what you're saying. It was, it was seeing myself 
as a character in a drama or fantasy at the same time as I was living it. Yes. Right? Exactly. And so you were like, and I said actually in the essay that I was, I would, I would walk around in my, like, I mean, like I would wear, you know, like short skirts in the era and those big earrings. And I would like imagine myself into like a Tama Janowitz novel or like even Mary Gateskill. And I was, you know, <laughs> that's what you want. I know the idea that a Mary Gateskill character would be aspirational. <laughs> I know, but it was I mean, to us because again, we were like this kind of cinematography. <laughs> yes, exactly. But because we were also being fed again, this bad girl thing where it was cheap yes. to be fucked up. It was interesting. It made you interesting to have an inappropriate relationship. It was like everything up was sort of down. And of course that was sustainable. It was sustainable for a while. And I was like, you know, I mean, I, I wanted to get this across in the essay I wrote, but it was wildly exciting to be involved in something like this until it became wildly upsetting. You know what I mean? Like there was a period where I was like absolutely delighted to be out in the world being a, an actress in my own movie, exactly what you're saying. And then of course it's not sustainable because, you know, this whole idea of like life is actually, you know, reality only exists subjectively and we're all just walking, walking through the world, playing out our own fantasies and performing our own, whatever it is. Um, and of course that's not true. So eventually reality catches up and you catch feelings and then you, you know, <laughs> find out that you're you know, just someone's stupid plaything. You have to deal with your the same kinds of feelings you had as a little child, just yes, being like hurt right. without then, without the sort of barrier, like the aesthetic shield of right. Cigarette. The aesthetic shield of smoking. Smoking is like a huge. I think someone needs to write a more definitive study of smoking and women. There was that book actually a Cornell professor wrote a few years ago, a, a bunch of years ago called. Richard Klein, was it about smoking? Do you remember Cigarettes Are Sublime? There was Cigarettes That's it. Are Cigarettes Sublime. Cigarettes Are Sublime, yes, yes. Um, we walked around like they were a prop. We That was our prop. They were our, they were our like, they were also our like, you know, security blanket thing. <laughs> like, like you didn't have to feel anything too deeply if you were smoking because <laughs> I'm fascinated that you had the same experience. Yeah, and I actually, I never really thought of it like I never really thought it through beyond just that I did a lot of that at that time. And I always, you know, I always make it about the fact that there wasn't the internet back then. So like, right. When I would write, I would be like, and I've said this many times, like I would stop if I got stuck when I was writing something, I would stop and like get a cigarette and just sit there and think. And then by the time the cigarette was smoked, I would have thought of some the, the next thing to write. Oh, and now, you didn't go on Facebook and be like, I wonder no, who that's right. Write, like, I wrote my first novel exactly the same way. I had a, with a, I played Al Green a lot. That was like my go-to music on my computer speakers. I had these big clunky plastic computer speakers. Right. And then I would smoke and drink Pinot Grigio my $10 King Grigio. <laughs> and it was very, it was it, honestly, um, it's funny because that my writing life, which I did at night mostly because I had some stupid jobs during the day and whatnot. I'm talking about my mid twenties. So like the mid nineties for us. Yeah. I mean, that was, it was a whole romance. I almost felt like I was like in like a relationship with my yeah, computer or something. I, I don't know. It was, do you remember feeling like you were again, a character? Totally. Back to this thing with a character. You were a character. You were a writer. Um, like, 
feeling things through your, I don't. Yeah. And it was like, you kind of just didn't care what happened to you or you could, or you could metabolize your experiences in a way that made them, you know, it was all about being interesting, interesting rather yes. than something that could hurt you. I actually, I, yes. I read something recently of Zadie Smith's and she was talking about how, you know, sort of for our generation, when we were coming up and thinking about art and, you know, just the relationship between our lives and culture, it was about what was interesting. Yeah, no, I think it was her. I think it was a review of um, the, I wanted to call it Tor, but it's actually Tar. Why did I think of the word Tor? Oh, but that's it, yeah, right. Tar. Yes, it was, that, it was that's a review right. of her piece right. about it was Tar. Piece yes. about Tar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was an interesting essay. She's a very good essayist. There was no, um, the whole language of harm and, well, we, I know you've talked on this show about these topics, but the idea of being harmed and trauma and all these, this whole vocabulary was reserved at that time for, and I think probably correctly for, you know, people who'd been raped at gunpoint and, yeah, or had been like, watched their mother die crossing the Rio Grande and, you know, with like, Yes. You know, trying to get to the U.S. from Mexico and like some terrible tragedy. And yeah, we just, our experiences, and, and frankly, some of them were, you know, damaging. I, I won't lie. Like the experience I had in college has, you know, I wouldn't have written this essay if it hadn't haunted me all these years, but I, I still refrain. I still do not want to call it anything that those words don't fit for what it, it was. It was a useful, you know, mistake. What was the name of your first book? You had a great title, like my miss. What? Oh yeah. The first book was called my misspent youth and I didn't want it to be called. I didn't want it to be called that. And oh, um, I like that title. Well, I know. And the thing is that my parents, you know, being such uh, such accomplished narcissists, they, <laughs> oh. they hated the title because they thought it reflected poorly on them. Oh, oh, I could see my parents having the same objection. Yeah. yeah. And so the, yeah, the reason that the piece, the, the book was called that was because the New Yorker piece had been called My Misspent Youth. One of the essays had been in the New Yorker and that was their title. Right, right, right. And then I had, yeah, when the book was going to come out, I had a whole other title and they kept saying to, you know, Tom Beller, who was, who was running Open City Books, kept saying, you have to call it My Misspent Youth. My Misspent Youth. And, it, it, uh, it sums things up pretty well. I mean, I, I think what I, what happened to me in college um, I see as part and parcel of my misspent youth and my problems at the time, but simultaneously acknowledging that I brought unneeded grief on myself the way many young people do. And also that, you know, also that someone acted extremely callously to me and that if there's any crime sort of thing, that would be where I land. You know, I still think that, you know, this was not a, you know, an abusive situation so much as a person acting extremely like, you know, thoughtlessly. It's emotional recklessness. And emotional recklessness. Yeah. And, you know, you can, you can do a lot of psychological damage. I mean, there's, there's no question about that. I, I would not have ended up revisiting this in writing. if I hadn't felt that. And it's funny because it came, I sort of had made peace with it. I thought in my thirties and whatnot. And then the Me Too movement yeah, I wonder how many people felt this, but it was kind of a, it, it, it only kind of upset me. <laughs> I felt disturbed by it, not relieved by it. Well, I mean, where were you with the Me Too movement at the time? Were, were you thinking, oh, like this speaks to me. Thank God we we need to 
address this or were you like, this is stupid? Like, where did you fall? Not at all. Well, one of the punchlines was that my first novel, which by the way, has a, a parody of a affair in it, in one of the chapters. So I had like been, you know, working, trying to work it out as early as my mid twenties. I had the only money I've ever, real money I've ever made from writing in my life, real money, you know, um, is that Harvey Weinstein optioned my first novel, What She Saw, in the year 2000. And so he was, ironically, Harvey Weinstein was like my fairy godfather. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I bought my, you know, like our, what became my home, my husband and I's home, you know, was was partly funded by Harvey Weinstein. It's just so hilarious. And so... <laughs> Um, so when the whole Harvey story hit, you know, I was aghast like everybody else and then kind of like mortified that I had like, you know, profited in some tiny way, but my God, we needed money. I had no money, you know? Yeah. You didn't, I don't think you can say he funded it. He bought no, it. he didn't fund it. He get, he handed me some money. They, yeah, I earned it. Right. And there was another bidder. So it's not like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, whatever he was okay. the highest bidder. I took the money and ran, but I just found that kind of ironic. And then. No, immediate. I, I did not identify myself with any of this because I had I said I was in a consensual relationship. This was not sexual harassment. Uh, now the definition of sexual harassment includes this stuff because it's considered like malpractice, like power imbalance, malpractice. You know, and I recognize that also, sort of simultaneously, that it is like I don't think it's de facto abusive, but it invites like prob. It invites that potential because there's also like a there's also a kind of a I mean a brain power gap mostly maybe you were a super sophisticated 20 year old were you <laughs> like I okay you were not because I feel like maybe some, I had a lot of older boyfriends but they weren't yeah. my professor but I definitely yeah. would get into those things where it was like mentor mentee like I think it's sort of inevitable know. at that age it's sort of built into it I mean I think there are maybe people of that age who are um I mean look our some of our grandparents you know used to get married at like 19 18 and you know like people in the older days that was a full-fledged adult by the way a lot of people got married after having student professor relationships yes like there are many many long lasting successful happy marriages that start that way exactly so i mean that was another thing people were like well you never know it might work out you know no i think that that usually they weren't married but <laughs> they weren't married to somebody else at the time yes um but um i think that the it sort of depends like where you think adulthood starts. I know it's become popular to say our brains aren't fully developed till we're 25 or something like that, which may be true, but I was, I was definitely, I was simultaneously a sophisticated 20 year old and operating with like not enough information, which I think is also just a, a reflection of experience. I mean, there's only so much, exp unless you left home at 16, if you're just a, you know, suburban girl like me and you, right? I mean, there's only so much experience you could have had, sort of. Right. Well, or, or you would get it from reading novels and watching or movies. Exactly. You get it from reading novels that celebrated, right? From reading Mary Gateskill. Um, <laughs> bad behavior, right? So I was operating in retrospect with like not full information. Um, but, you know, the other thing is like, we I don't know if we've talked about, but there's also at that age, a hunger for experience and the recklessness is, is like, you know, we're all 
especially ambitious literary girls like us, right? I mean, there was a kind of a hungering for like, I can't wait to be part of the adult world. Yes. And anything that gets me closer to that excitement, you know, by by senior of college, as you were saying, like the boys seem very low status, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were just like, well, not, I don't mean low status. Hard, no, it's hard for them. Well, they don't have anything to, op- what are they going to offer? They don't offer, exactly. They don't offer a, any any new knowledge that I don't, I don't already have. And I didn't meet anybody. And uh, having said that, I had a, you know, a lovely uh, college later had a lovely college boyfriend or the year after whatever, who was my age exactly. But the things you're hankering for at that age are hard to come by if you're ambitious like us and hungry. So what has the response been to the piece? The response has been uh, overwhelmingly positive. I was very nervous publishing this. I mostly only published fiction, a few essays here and there. I wrote a piece about my mother when she died uh, about 10, not quite 10 years ago, also for the New Yorker, but mostly I've, 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 uh, hidden my bits and pieces of my life in fiction. So I was super nervous publishing this, but I've had an incredibly positive response. Um, a lot of people related to a few lines, which I didn't know they would relate to, but one was about the sexual revolution, uh, making it unfashionable to have any boundaries. (laughs) Um, Mm. and the other line people related to was about the emotional wounds we walk around with are like, not just because someone was mean or bad to us, but was like, has maybe mostly to do with like it proving our secret fears about ourselves that like whatever happened, isn't just that like somebody was mean, somebody was, you know, someone broke my heart, someone betrayed me. It's like, well, maybe I deserved it. And I think that the the maybe I deserved it and who would have loved me anyway stuff. I, I think that spoke to some people also. So mm-hmm. anyway, that was very, it's been gratifying. Say more about the boundary thing. That's fascinating. Um, so our, so my mother was like, went to like a classic probably years to 1950s high school. There was like a few bad girls, mm-hmm. fast girls, fast girls. Right. Yeah. And actually her <laughs> own brother was like, was like, you know, the one like, you know, out there, like <laughs> um, he was, he was yeah. scoring. Yeah. He was out there scoring and my grandparents were getting hysterical calls from the parents, but my mother wasn't like that. And she, she described like, you know, the terror of like these boys trying to pull one on you and like get access and stuff like that. So I, it seems to me that by the time we were in high school, it had completely flipped. People forget this. Like, like it was humiliating being a virgin you know, do you remember this? Like it had so gone the other direction that like, I remember a boy like almost bullying me when I was 16 and walking up to me at the water fountain and being like, you're a virgin. Really? I don't, we didn't have, no, that was not my experience in high school. But I mean, what is, I think people forget is that the 1980s were an incredibly conservative time. Yeah. And there was, at least this was my observation. There was an almost um, fetishizing of the 1950s. Like it was cool to listen to that music yes, in the happy early 60s. Days. But it yeah, was like and like the spine. big chill soundtrack, which is early oh, right. which is the 60s. 50s. But yeah. And I my theory was always that the parents of so like the, the, the parents who were like older boomers or whatever the generation is that's yeah. older than the boomers, right before the war. Like, my, my parents. Yeah. Yeah, um, mine too. They there was like those 
adults were romanticizing that period. Right. And they loved it when the kids got into it because they were like into Ferris Bueller twist and shout kind of scenes. And there was just the kind the fashion was like those prairie skirts. And there was something like almost Bobby Soxy in the fashion culture. At that it was time. such a, I mean, I guess I would say like thinking about the sexual culture of the eighties, like there was these weird mixed messages because you did have the fetish for the fifties and a conservative government and Reagan was like right, exactly. a throwback. He was an old man who was like a fifties movie star Right. And then, but you had simultaneously the sexual revolution and the Rocky Horror Picture Show and whatever. And so the messages were like simultaneously, like, don't be a slut, but also, but don't be, a, but you can't be a prude either. There was this weird thing about like, it was humiliating. Whatever you were, it was humiliating. It was like humiliating <laughs> getting a bad reputation and being like the girl who gives blowjobs on the bus. There was like one of the, you know, there was like the girl in the high school, right? Who was like, whatever mocked for giving and then there was the 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 prude which was like uh and that i wrote about in the piece like was an embarrassing figure also and so i remember enormous pressure especially for like super late bloomers like me to like get with the program and like but you also couldn't have sex with random people so it was like this like it had to be like a particular scenario where it was acceptable but then it had to be done well, and I guess it, I guess it was that you needed a boyfriend, like you needed a real relationship. You needed a relationship, right? You were a slut if you just like hooked, like had sex, right? With exactly. Men, but but you also had to have a boyfriend to be like respectable. Yes, and and then you had to have sex, and then you had to like be in like right. Male attention was huge. Like you were you were you were also told simultaneously that it was the LA law, you know, it was like, you could be a lawyer and like a pet, you could be wear corporate shoulder pads and yeah. be a career girl. But it was like, at, at the same time, like the most important thing was that you were hot and that you had male attention, like both things at once. But do you think anything's changed? Oh, wow. Maybe not. <laughs> I have two teenage daughters. So, um, I mean, they have names for all this stuff now. Like, uh, uh, like, like I was saying, pretty privilege and stuff like that. I mean, I, I has anything changed? I mean, one on the one hand, Instagram's probably made the pressure to be perfect looking much worse. They're always like, you know, there's so much makeup. There's more makeup than we were growing up. I thought we just wore eyeliner. No, I mean, no, like, I barely wore any makeup. I wore Bonnie Bell makeup. Oh, Bonnie Bell lip gloss. We wore lip gloss. I wore like. Some kind of Revlon lipstick. I didn't wear much makeup occasionally, but there's a lot of like they all know about like things like contouring and, yeah, you know, and like know. they all both my daughters curl their eyelashes before school. I'm like, why? I don't I don't even understand it. But that's just done. That's just what people do. So on the one hand, there's even more pressure. On the other hand, I mean my theory is that as the gender stuff becomes wackier and wackier, that the super girl, the girlish girls become like even more exaggerated versions of that in, in reaction in some way. And then the career pressure. I mean, I mean, girls are a dominant in college now. They're, they're, they're more girls go to are in, are in these the ratios are skewed now. So I would think they're even more likely to want to have an affair with their professor because there are so <laughs> few men in the college. Right. Really. That's true. But then they, that, that just, I'm guessing that just does not happen it anymore be because it's unthinkable. grounds for, 
it's it's actually unthinkable now. It's it's truly unthinkable. Also, you have to remember. So, like the another huge difference between when we were young is like you know how often did you talk to your parents when you were in college? Oh, like maybe <laughs> twice a month, like right on the payphone in the on dorm. the payphone in the hall, right? So. Yeah. Like your, your parents would know where you were, maybe like they would know, be like, oh, she's at the, I mean, do, do that people call their parents and they're like, I'm heading over to the like Delta, Delta SIG party now. And I don't know, maybe they do. So this would never happen because the parents would get wind of it immediately. And like, you know, all hell would break loose. Uh, we were kind of I had pretty protective involved parents. And even then I don't think we spoke more than once a week. And when I skipped the once a week, there was great concern. Like, you know, they worried because they hadn't heard from me in a week. You didn't even have that. Did you <laughs> like um, maybe, I mean, I don't know if it was once a week or every other week, but every other there was, week. Yeah. There was a lot going on with my parents when I was in college. Right. But right. Okay. Did your parents know about this affair? Um, sort of uh i can't fully place it on some level yes but you know again um i think that it was just a, it's hard to imagine but i why wasn't to their in their eyes i was a, an adult you know and uh it was not discussed but yeah they were sort of Had, did they ever meet him <laughs> I don't think so. I, I can't, if if so, I can't remember. Maybe maybe randomly, accidentally in later years or something. But no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think ever. But I don't think that anybody was particularly upset that. And then I, I probably didn't talk about it because also we didn't share that much with right. Oh yeah, no, they didn't want to know. I mean, talk about embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to go too deep in a family psychology, but I um. I remember actually, this is ironic, but I remember a person I was seeing to deal with the eating disorder telling me that it wasn't helpful to tell, involve my parents or something. I wonder if people give advice like that anymore. Uh, for certain things. Yep. Depending. Yeah. Like, it, they, he, you know, I mean, I think I actually was like trying to break free of that, like feeling that I had to tell my parents things. So that was kind of liberating in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is another area that we should talk about at some point, but like my mother was born in 39. I don't know about yours, but we have very similar. 42. 42. Okay. I'm the youngest child, but um, they sort of skipped also. Uh, My mom had by the summer of love and whatever, she had two kids and a third on the way. Um, So they were sort of like right before the women's lib movement took off. So, and they, a lot, a lot of them were married with kids by the time it was in the air. Now, if you, I've thought about this a lot, I, they were in a really bad spot. Like they did not enjoy, they, they were witness to the sexual revolution, but they did not really reap the benefits of it. A hundred percent. Yes. And it 100%. induced a particular kind of anger that I think was interesting, really definitional for, or, or neuroticism in, non, in my mother's case, not anger, but maybe neuroticism. A, repre- a sort of repressed soul that never, you know, uh, they, there were, to be fair, there were some people of that exact age who were kind of on the front lines, more, a more, a less timid personality, maybe yeah, who were out there, 
But my mother's uh, roommate at, you know, and she was at a very sophisticated college, Sarah Lawrence, her, her roommate got married junior year with a guy 10 years older, whatever. They're still married. I, th- I don't know. And they were all married by the time they, even at, a, even at a very sophisticated place like Sarah Lawrence college, they were, they were, uh, a lot of them were engaged by the end of college or whatever, or short, shortly thereafter. So they didn't miss that. And so it was kind of a, it wasn't the free, the free to be you and me thing did not speak to me. That was not my upbringing at all. It was more ethnically Jewish, but it was more what people think of as a waspy, <laughs> like a, do not probe your innermost feelings for public consumption kind of thing. Oh, I, I, I think that's, I relate to that certainly, but I think the free to be you and me thing more, I think has to do with gender and being told that as a girl, you didn't have to be a girly girl. Oh, right. You're right. You're right. I was sort of, that's really the the context. Well, I, I, that, then I take back what I said because I did feel freedom to be sort of a tomboy growing up. So I, 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 oh, I mean, being a girly girl was the worst thing you could be. Like when I was in elementary school, that was the wrong reference because actually I did sort of live that dream and there, and I did not, to my parents' credit, I do not remember getting pressure for them to be girly at all. It, I, we were we were of the seventies in that way, and you too. Like, yeah, uh, I had a lot of androgynous clothing, and um, I was an athlete. I was a good athlete, actually. I think that freedom is is great in in, but maybe unrestrained freedom without any. But I, I'm not the first to say this, but sort of like the like feminism, the sexual revolution did not sort of was not accompanied by new ideas about women. So it just ended up repeating a lot of shit that (laughs) had always been there, but it gave justification to like, I don't want to, well, Jeffrey Epstein's a complicated subject, but like, you know, it gave permission to people like psychopaths like that to think that they were doing something acceptable. And that stuff had always happened. It's just that it, like, it. Yeah, well, it had a sort of, it, it, yeah, it was. Outre uh, and, like, yeah, it was just right. like, it, I mean, it's always been that, that that's, there have always been Jeffrey Epstein's in history, but, or Woody, back to Woody Allen or something like that. It made, like, it made certain kinds of predatory behavior acceptable. Yeah. And it made being an ass a male, an asshole, okay, also. <laughs> Which, I mean, it made it it sort of like sanctified a kind of callousness. That's what I sort of think. So I hope that my daughters are like in whatever happens, I hope they have emotional connections to people because that seems like obvious, but like if it got forgotten during our era, that like it's really good to have emotional connections to people. (laughs) No, I agree. Although I think one of the great things about our era, though, was that we were able to like roll our eyes at boorish behavior rather than like get actively upset about it. Like there's no greater power than being able to laugh somebody off. Like that's true. That's true. I'm thinking about that right now. I mean, on the one hand, I want to say yes. On the other hand, I want to say irony because that was also our generational stance, right? Irony, like sort of a band-aid sometimes for stuff but it was protective protective irony and I think it it did sort of help me get through my 20s when like nothing was going well in any arena at all like I mean I you know it 
made you able to laugh at failure and stuff like that, which is a little harder now. And I guess that getting back to what you were saying about the Me Too movement, it's, um, which I found sort of like distressing in some way. It was because it sort of like disallowed a, a certain level of irony. But I mean, I'm, I'm happy like Harvey Weinstein was called on this shit because he's basically a rapist. But I mean, that's different. I think that, of course, rape has never been, uh, I mean, rape has always been a crime in theory, if not in practice, it, you know, even if not litigated. Um, and he was, was simply a rapist. So it's, fu- it's fine with me. Yeah. <laughs> he's gone. Um, uh, <sighs> All right. Well, you're going to stay and do a little bonus and we're going to basically continue, continue this conversation in a slightly more specific way. We're going to talk about how you feel about being the age that you are, which is the same age that I am. Um, But yeah, before I let you go, what was like the most surprising reaction you got from this essay? Um, Let me think about that. Um, It was just, I had an overwhelmingly positive response. I thought, I thought people would be more judgmental. And I was pleasantly surprised to see that with a few exceptions, um, you know, I thought that I, I was so, I've so internalized the idea that I'm to blame for everything that I thought there would be more kind of like you, you what the hell, what did you think was going to happen? You know, you're, you're, you were the architect of your own, you know, really. I, I I had so internalized that idea that like I well I think our generation also it's like everything that goes wrong is like my fault. <laughs> I've never I, we're not in the blaming business, right? Is that a so generational like, thing or just a temperament thing? Oh, because I blame myself for everything, but it's all it's almost like a little form of narcissism, like that everything is my fault. Oh, everything's your fault. No, I think it's generational. I think we were just like so conditioned to be like we did not live up to the to the ideals of like what all 10 categories that we were supposed to do from our body weight to our, you know, ability to, I was like so ashamed of my ability of the thing I was most ashamed of was, was that I was still upset about it in some way. Like I thought there was like, there would be more like get over it. (laughs) And And in fact, I didn't get that at all. And I had a lot of women saying that they had had their own, there's a reference in the piece to the um, Saturn, the Goya painting, Saturn devours yeah. his sons. And ever, I heard someone say that they were able to better understand their own Goya Saturn. You know, that they, um, a lot of women had had an experience with someone who, as someone said, they thought they were controlling the reins. And then it sort of turned out they weren't. But they had been given the message that they were in charge. And then they sort of it came back to bite them. So. I was surprised not to be more humiliated in some way, <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, that's always a plus. Yeah. So, well, as I told you, and I, I also discussed this on my other podcast with Sarah Hader, I just love the essay. It's, it's like a real personal essay as it should Thank be. Thank you like so old, much. Old-fashioned writing and Thank just so about much. so many things at once and Thank you. I really, really wanted to get the politics along with the personal story because I thought I think they went hand in hand. And that was my goal was to like layer them on top of each other. And uh, it took I, I want to tell readers that our readers, I mean, listeners that um, I actually sat on that for four years. I sat on that. I wrote a first draft in 2019. 
So that's how scared I was. I know. And it takes a long time to write a polished piece and to edit yeah. it, I should say. It was, it's it. exquisitely edited Yes, uh, by not... a real editor at The New Yorker. Truly. And, truly. As opposed to what most Deborah. of what is we're dealing with now. I know somebody, I heard somebody say like, oh, I wrote this essay and it took me, God, it just, it took so long. It took so long. And I said, how long? Like, like you know, like a week. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I real, this is like the mark of a real writer and you, you, you're, you understand this and I understand this. Like by the time I've finished something, I know every sentence by heart, like every sentence is in my head. Cause I've gone over it 4,000 times and looked at it backwards and rearranged it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like laying out like pieces of a tile, you know, a tile bathroom or something where you like every tile has to be in place. And otherwise you're going to have to live with it and it exists and it's not quite right. And you can't, I mean, it's intolerable to me to think that there's like one word wrong. <laughs> right. Well, so. uh, I think every word is exactly where it should be. So thank you so much. Thank you. I'm and, uh, thrilled you liked for talking it. With me. Thank you, Megan, for having me on. That was my conversation with Lucinda Rosenfeld. She's the author of five novels, most recently Class, which came out in 2017. If you want to hear that bonus portion of the conversation where uh, we talk about the ages that we are, among all sorts of other things, the way to do that is to go to the substack, megandaum.substack.com, and become a paying subscriber at any level that gets you bonus content every single week. It is totally worth it. So please do that. What else do you need to know? Uh, once again, I will be teaching a personal essay and memoir masterclass September 6th through October 11th. Go to the Substack to find out about that. Oh, and I forgot to mention this at the beginning. The Unspeakable now has a YouTube channel. That does not mean that I am doing video interviews, but I am posting audio versions of the interviews on the YouTube channel, which is called The Unspeakable Podcast. That is the name of the channel. I am doing this because apparently everybody under 30 only listens to podcasts on YouTube. So if that's you, now you can listen. Uh, nothing else has changed. You can also listen all the other places, but uh, that is where you can go. And there's going to be uh, back catalog episodes. They're already up there, uh, selected episodes from the past. Uh, so you can listen to those and... From now on, every episode will be uploaded to the YouTube channel. So that is that. Once again, one day on Speakeasy Retreat, Saturday, September 30th in Denver. Go to theunspeakeasy.com to find out about that. What else do I have to tell you? I think that's it. I think I've said enough. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.